Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 13. I invite you to stand with me this morning, reverence to God's word as we read together. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that, it may, and that you may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out of there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the lord our god for he has commanded us you may be seated We have come to the last two Sundays that we will be looking in the book of Deuteronomy as we are uh, thinking through what it means to live as strangers in a strange land, to live as people who are different than the land and the culture around us. And today I want us to think about the way in which we should live because of how God has delivered us. If you Think about as, and we looked through this book a number of years ago in the book of Ephesians, as Paul is writing to the church there at Ephesus, he is talking to them about the good news of what Christ has done for uh, the Gentile audience that he is writing to. And, and in light of that, when he comes to the beginning of chapter 4, he says something very familiar, a passage that you have probably heard many times, and he says... He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He tells them to walk worthy of the calling to which they have been called. When we look at this passage in the book of Deuteronomy, as we think about the people being delivered from bondage, we realize that God had called them specifically. We can go all the way back into the book of Genesis and we see where God places a calling on a man by the name of Abram. He later changes his name to Abraham and he tells him that out of him he is going to make a great and mighty nation. And so when we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're on the verge of seeing that promise fulfilled. 
God having promised beforehand that he was going to give to this man Abraham and his descendants a great nation. He was going to give them a place to live, a promised land. And we see that now they're on the verge of having that fulfilled. And that's where these commands that we have looked at over the summer have come from. On that, that verge of fulfilling that promise. But that promise has come with a calling. A calling to be his people. And so this morning, I want us to, to look at three callings that God has placed on our life because he has done a mighty work in delivering us from bondage. Three callings that God has placed on our life because he has delivered us from bondage. He has delivered us from evil. He had delivered them from slavery and he has delivered us from slavery to sin and placed these three callings on our life. And so we'll see them as we go through the text this morning. The first is the calling to be different. The calling to be different. We see that as we pick up there in verse 13, going through our text, this calling to be different. In this calling, he shows us three ways that we're going to be different, or rather that they were going to be different than the people around them. They were going to come into this strange land, and they had all of these different gods, and they were doing all of these different things, and they had all of these different styles of worship, and they were all different and contrary to what God had called them to do. And so the calling that he places on their life is a calling to be different from the people around them. Look, first he, he says you're going to be different by fearing the Lord. He says it is the Lord your God you shall fear. In other words, there are others that you could go and fear. There's others that you could go and have a, a reverence for. You're going to see them when you come into this land. You're going to see them all around you. There's going to be these idols that people are going to fall down and worship. But you, you're going to be different. You're going to fear the Lord. You're going to have reverence, a healthy, respectful reverence for God. You're going to be different. As we look around us in our culture today, we realize that, that there are all kinds of different things that people have fear and respect for. Not fear in the sense that they are frightened, afraid of what is going on, afraid of this person, afraid of this institution, but rather they have a, a healthy fear and respect for it, and it is the, the thing that drives them. It is the thing in which they find their authority. We look around and we see that in our government. We see that in different institutions of our culture. People have decided that they're going to have this healthy fear and reverence for these things. And so that becomes their guiding force. Whatever that thing is, whatever that institution is, they're going to do whatever it tells them to do. So if they've, they've gotten a healthy fear, or rather an unhealthy fear and reverence for the government, then whatever the government says, that is king for them, and that is law. If it is some institution, such as money or some uh, financial industry, whatever they say to do, that's what they do. So for them, their fear and reverence is found in maybe their investment advisor or their banker. It's found in their boss at work because ultimately he controls whether or not they get a paycheck. And so for them, that becomes the thing that they have fear for. Unfortunately, in our society, people have, have gained this reverence and fear for other gods. So they worship the false gods of Islam or of 
the Eastern religions that you can find throughout Asia. They've come to worship and have reverence for their atheism in, in establishing in their own minds some firm foundation, some firm belief that, that simply there is no God and that's what they worship. Whatever it is, God instructs them as they're about to enter into the promised land that they're going to be different and they're going to be different by fearing God. And then next, the, the very next thing he says, not only are you going to be different by fearing God, but you're going to be different by serving God. Again, there at the end of verse 13. You shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So not only are you to have this fear of God, but then service of God is to set you apart from the world around you. Again, in the, the culture that they're going to go to, part of the action of worship for those other false gods, those idols, those statues, was to serve that God in some manner. Whether it was through an offering by giving that God something, whether it was even in some cases sacrificing your children to that God, there was a service that was demanded of these false gods. And he says, you're not going to do that. You're not going to fear them. You're not going to have reverence for them. You're also not going to serve them. You're not going to go through this worship, this idol worship. You're not going to go through making sacrifices to these idols so that maybe they'll bring the rain or so that they'll send you fertility or so that your crops will be in abundance. You're not going to do those things. That's not your job. You're going to serve me and me alone. You're going to worship me and me alone. You're going to offer service to me. The things that I have called you to do, the things that I have demanded of you, those are the things you're going to do, but you're not going to render that service to any other God. You know, service is something that people love to do to the things that they worship. Now you think about that. You say, well, I don't like serving very much. Well, you're, you're serving something. Maybe you're not serving the thing you say you're worshiping in God, but you're serving something. You think about that. We get interested in a cause. We get interested in, in, in a, a, um, an institution. We get, we get uh, interested in, in some type of thing that, that we really enjoy doing. We'll serve that, right? I mean, we'll give over our time. We'll give over our money. We're about to see that, right, as... The fall season is picking back up. We already, high school sports have already started, and, and there were thousands upon thousands gathered on Friday night to cheer on their teams, right? And they, they paid for a ticket, and they've got the, the sports wear, uh, you know, and they've got the, the, the season passes, and they've got all the things that are caught up in that, right? And there'll be many people that for the next several months, that will be their worship. They'll gather together in arenas and they will worship those very things that are happening. They'll worship their team. They'll worship their players. Whatever it is, you think about it. You can think about it throughout our society. People love to serve things. It's amazing to me now the, the amount of people that put money into causes that stand against what God's Word has said. Think about the amount of money that is spent not only on things like abortion, but pushing that agenda, 
The people in the backgrounds that are spending millions of dollars on those things, what are they doing? They're serving that God. We have to be careful where our service goes. We have to be careful where we are giving over our time and our efforts. Are we doing things as a sign of worship to things that do not deserve our worship? There's a a difference between hobbies and entertainment and worshiping something. Some things that you and I can enjoy as a hobby or entertainment. Some people worship that thing and give over all their service to it. I enjoy going hunting. I'm not nearly as good at it as some of you. I'm not as proficient. I don't have the kind of equipment that some of you have, and that's fine. But you've got to watch because I know people that worship that. I love my kids, but I know some people that worship their kids, and they give their service of worship that is due to our Heavenly Father, they give it over to their children, they give it over to their spouse, they give it over to their job, they give it over to their sports or their entertainment, they give it over. For them, it's no longer healthy, it's become unhealthy as they serve that thing as if it were God. We've got to watch that. Because we can fall into that trap. Most of those things are not bad in and of themselves. There is nothing inherently bad with sports, with our children, with our families, with our jobs. But if we, become to the, if we come to the point where we serve that thing, we serve at its pleasure, and we serve in a form of worship to it, then it is no longer good. And he says, you're going to be different. Because when you go into this land, you're going to see people who are serving these false gods and they're serving them with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. They're going to serve it with everything that they are. But you will not do that. You will serve God and serve Him alone. Be different by serving God. And then thirdly here, be different by swearing to God. Be different by swearing to Him. He ends that verse 13 with... By and by his name you shall swear. In other words, when you make an oath, when you make promises, you're making them to whom? To God. When you stand up on your wedding day and you're making your vows, you're not making those vows simply to your spouse. You're entering into a covenant relationship, you and your spouse and God. And you're making that commitment to him. Because sometimes your spouse is not going to live up to your expectations. Sometimes they're going to change in ways that you didn't think. Sometimes they're going to do things that you don't like or you didn't realize or you didn't know about this when you came into the relationship. But that doesn't matter because you made the commitment not just to him or her, but you made that commitment to whom? To your heavenly father. See, there, again, in this this time, they're making their oaths to all of these false gods. They're saying, by this God or by that God, I'll do that. And he says, listen, if you're going to make a promise, you need to realize you're making that oath, you're making that promise in front of me. You're not just making it to the person to whom you're talking. You're not making it to the group that you're having a discussion with. You're making that oath to me. You're going to be different because I'm going to hold you to it. It's binding. It's in place because you have made it. Again, we, we live in a time where our word is cheap. It doesn't really mean anything. 
where people can just do whatever they want, where they can say one thing one day and the next thing the next day, and nobody really holds them into any account for what they're saying. But here he's saying when you make an oath, when you make a, a, when you commit to something, it is important. It is your bond. It is something that has meaning. It is because you're making it in front of me. See, we understand that God is a God of truth. In fact, Christ is the truth. And so as a God of truth and the God who is the truth, he values our word and he values what we say. And so as Christians, we're called to be different in this place that we live because our word is supposed to mean something. Is that how you view your commitments? That's hard. It's hard. It's hard to say one thing now and still be holding yourself to it five years from now, ten years from now. Sometimes it's hard to hold yourself to it a week from now. But when we make commitments... We have got to struggle to do them because our oath has been made before God. Not simply out there like the world treats it. Because the world is full of broken promises. The world is full of people who do not keep their word. As a matter of fact, the world is full of people who will tell you one thing simply to get you to do something only to let you down later. We have got to be different as Christians. We have got to make sure that our word is our bond because we have made it before God. That the oath we take, the oath we take is an oath we've made to Him. And so what we should do is just, if we say we're going to do it, do it. If we say we're not, not. We need to just stand upon that because we have been changed by the power of Christ. Our hearts are different because of Him, and therefore our word must be different. Those are three ways that we are different. Now, why are we different? We tells them in verses 14 and 15 why they're going to be different. He says in verse 14, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Why? Why are we different? Because God is jealous. You say, well, jealousy is not a good thing. Well, God is jealous. So you can work out that however you want theologically. But he doesn't like it when the ones who have been called his bride go after other gods. And the illustration is very clear. I don't think it's, it's hard to understand at all. If you are married and your wife is all flirting with another guy, you're angry. If you're not, you're lying. I don't even care if you don't like her that much. She's still yours, and you're going to be angry about it. And that's what God is right here. It's the exact illustration. That's the entire point. The Bible pictures us as His bride, the bride of Christ. If we are in the church, if we are Christians, we are His bride. Christ is the groom, we are His bride. And when He goes off, and when we go off and are talking to somebody else, He gets angry. In fact, He gets jealous. 
and his jealousy boils over to anger where he might wipe you off the face of the earth. That's exactly what the text says here. That's why we're different. Because every time our focus turns off of Christ, every time our focus goes away from God who has redeemed us and saved us and called us His bride, He gets angry. He gets jealous. Because He's so much greater than everything else we're we're looking at over here. He's so much greater than these gods that we're going over here and, and trying to talk to and trying to flirt with and trying to, uh, trying to go with and trying to leave with and following after, even though they have nothing to offer. Here's Christ, here's God with everything to offer us who has done everything for us. And our attention keeps drawn, being drawn other places. Of course he's angry. Of course he's jealous. And so that's why we want to keep our focus on God. That's why we decide in our hearts, even today, we are going to be different. We're going to commit ourselves to fearing God. We're going to commit ourselves to serving God. We're going to commit ourselves to swearing by God. There's going to be no other gods in front of us because Christ is supreme. He is best. He has done all for us. We need not turn to the left or to the right because we have God in front of us as our focus. And so the calling, the first calling on our life is to be different from the world around us. We need to be different. He follows that up by the calling, the second calling here, to be faithful. The calling is to be different And then the calling is to be faithful. He picks up there in verse 16. How are we faithful? There are, again, three ways he provides us that we can be faithful. The first, in verse 16, we're faithful by fighting against doubt. We're faithful by fighting against doubt. He says in verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. What happened at Massa? Well, if you go back into the book of Exodus, what you find out is that in the book of Exodus at Massa, the people questioned God. They, they came to this place, there was no water, and they were fearful that they were all going to die because they didn't have any water. And so they become angry at God, they become angry at Moses. Why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us to this place with no water? We're all going to die here in the wilderness. It's the same thing. They say it over and over again, woe is me, woe is me, what are we going to do? And he tells them here as a reminder, by the way, as you're going into this new place, do not doubt God. Fight against doubt. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did here at Massa. Fight against doubt. You know, doubt is something that I think we all struggle with. If you never struggle with doubt at all, you probably haven't wrestled with difficult questions about God. Doubt is not a sign of weakness. Doubt is not a sign of uh, spiritual immaturity. I would say that doubt is often a sign of spiritual maturity where God is maturing you through your doubt. And so you're struggling with hard questions because you're thinking about God and you say, well, what about this or what about that? How did God do this or how did God do that? If you never think about God, of course you don't doubt. 
And so if, if you never doubt, try to think a little bit more about some of the things of God. And when you have some of those doubts, God gives us the great opportunity to wrestle with those doubts. We wrestle in his word. We wrestle by talking with other Christians, and that allows us to grow in our faith. But he says here, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What did they do at Massa? They did not fight against their doubt. The doubt came because they look and they see, okay, there's no water here. There's all of us. We're in the desert. We're going to die. It would be reasonable for all of us to think about. We come to a place in the desert. There is no water. And we realize that, that only a few days and we'll be dead. The problem is, instead of fighting that doubt and remembering, okay, the Lord just brought us out of Egypt. The Lord just delivered us out of the hand of Pharaoh. The Lord just took us across the Red Sea. Uh, we walked across on dry land. Maybe God's going to do something. But they don't do that. They say, woe is me. Woe is me. We're going to die. We're all going to die. Why are we here? Why did God bring us here just to die and our children? And blah, blah, blah. They're whining. Why? Why are they whining? Because they do not wrestle against their doubt. They do not fight it. Friends, if we want to be faithful to God, we must fight against our doubt. We do not allow doubt to win, and we do not get to the point where we just, just stop trying. None of those things are pleasing to God. Neither one of them, but fighting against our doubt. So we come to a place in our life where we're struggling with questions, we're, we're struggling with not having things the way we want them to be, and that is the opportunity then for us to fight against our doubt, to, to get into God's Word and study what He has said, to spend time in prayer. But we don't do that, right? We don't wrestle. We don't fight. We just give in. I mean, think about how many people today call themselves agnostic or call themselves atheist because they were too afraid to fight their doubt. They simply allowed the smallest doubt to come into their life and they wouldn't fight against it. I've shared many times how at, near the end of high school, the beginning of college, I was functioning in my life much like an atheist in my mind. A period there four to six months where I was just like, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't want to fool it. There's too many questions. Well, the reality of what was going on is I was being lazy in fighting against my doubt. I was just letting the doubt win because there was hard questions and I just didn't want to find the answer to them. Friends, there's still hard questions. There's still hard questions that I have to deal with today. There's hard questions that you have to deal with. We, we can't be satisfied with just saying, well, okay, the Bible says this. That's great if you can tell me where it's at in the Bible. Don't just assume the Bible says it. Maybe it doesn't say it. Maybe you need to wrestle with that. When people in our society come up with hard, difficult questions about God, we shouldn't ignore them. We should want to engage those things. We should want to answer those questions. Because I believe all the important questions that human beings need to know to live, God has answered. Now, there's some that he has chosen not to answer, and we need to accept that. We need to realize that they are simply then not for us to know. They're too big for us to understand, or God has called upon us to spend our life wrestling with them, but we need to be prepared to get to the end and be satisfied with simply what God has given us. 
Friends, if you're not fighting your doubt, you're going to struggle to be faithful. Again, I'm not telling you this morning that you can't have doubts, that there's something wrong with you if you have doubts. Because all of us struggle with doubt. All of us are presented with questions from time to time that we don't know the answer to, and it takes time for us to figure them out. But if we're not fighting our doubt, we're not being faithful. The second, we can be faithful by obeying God. Verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. We've seen this over and over and over again through the book of Deuteronomy. We can be faithful by obeying God. Friends, that is the simplest statement that we could probably make when it comes to God's statutes and His commands. And yet, it is so difficult for us to do that because we refuse to accept the necessity of obeying God. Friends, I'm not talking about lost people here. We can point to lost people all the time and say, you know what, they're not doing what God has said. They're not living a life that's pleasing to God. Friends, I would tell you they don't have the capacity to obey Christ. A lost person does not have the capacity to obey God. They have the capacity to know right from wrong, but over time, they do not have the capacity to obey God. Maybe in, in a moment, in a moment here, in a moment there, they could obey Him, but, but friends, they do not have the capacity to obey God. But you do. If you are in Christ this morning, you have the capacity to obey God. Because it's not going to be your obedience that comes through. It's going to be the obedience of Christ. And see, Christians are so bad about saying, well, you know, the sin made me do it. You know, we do something we are not supposed to do, and we want to come up with a super spiritual Sunday school answer as to why we're not really responsible. But see, that's a problem. If you claim the name of Christ, if you claim that you have repented of your sin and believed the gospel, you have the capacity to obey. And you still have the capacity to refuse, and we're pretty good at that one, aren't we? Now, God has said this, but you know, I, I just couldn't do it. Sin made me do it. The devil made me do it. You know, that's our cop-out. It's a Christian cop-out. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, you have the capacity and the responsibility to obey Christ. We talk about the grace that Christ has afforded us in dying on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And rightly we should. But we do not and should not and must not take that as the easy way out to excuse our continual sin when we are Christians. The fact is, we are fully responsible for our sin both before and after we are converted to Christ. And it is necessary because Christ has called upon us to obey Him that we seek out being obedient in our life. If you want to be faithful to the God who has saved you, you must obey Him. Don't write it off as something else. Don't write it off as a mistake. Don't call it a slip up. Don't call it, well, I, I'm still trying to break the old person in me and all this. You know, you, you've been trying to do that for 30 or 40 years. Why is there not some of that broken yet? We just need to commit ourselves to obeying Him. And when we do not obey Him, we need to repent 
and seek to obey Him again. And it's going to mean that we repent a lot, but we need to keep doing it. Day in and day out, daily repenting of our sin, daily crying out to God for mercy, daily seeking to obey Him. Friends, the consequences of disobedience for them, for the people in the Old Testament, for God's people, was that they would be put to death by Him or carried into captivity by Him. The good news for us is that He has extended us grace through Christ. That in our sin, when we sin, we are not destroyed. That He doesn't kick us out. That He doesn't remove us. That we don't lose our salvation. That's His great grace. But friends, we, if we want to be faithful, must set our hearts toward obeying God. His commandments, His testimonies, His statutes, which He has commanded you. I love what Moses does here, and he does it throughout this this whole section. Even though he has become the intermediary between them and God, he is constantly framing it directly to them. You know, when you take a preaching class, they tell you that, that sometimes you need to say you, and sometimes you need to say we, so that people don't think you're always preaching at them. And that's fine, and I try to do that. Moses doesn't do that here. He wants them to understand this is not some abstract collective far away. This is them personally and them together God is calling on them to obey Him. And He has given them directly these commands that they might obey. And then the last part, the third here of how we are faithful. The first part of verse 18. He says, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swear to give your fathers. The third thing, the third way we are faithful is by doing what is right. Now this goes back to his commands because ultimately his commands are right. And by doing them we are being right. But we need to understand that because he pulls it out separately and I think we should as well. There is right and wrong. In the world there's right and wrong. And it's not based on anything but what God has said. Everything else is abstract. Everything else is gray. Everything else we can debate back and forth on whether it's right or whether it's wrong. But the things that God has said to do are right. And the things that God has said not to do are wrong. And He has called upon us to do what is right. And in His eyes is where we should do them. Do what is right and good in the sight of God. The Lord. Friends, if you want to be faithful, you've got to commit yourself to doing what God has said and what is right in His sight. The world's going to tell you everything else. The world's going to tell you what you should do. The world's going to tell you what you shouldn't do. The world's going to tell you how you should live. The world's going to tell you how you should spend your money. The world's going to tell you the places you should go. The world's going to tell you what you should believe. And you have a decision to make. And you make it every single day. Will you do what is right in the sight of God or will you do what is right in the sight of the world? Because they are different things. If you don't know that, if that's news to you this morning, 
Go home this afternoon, turn on the television. You're missing some things. You're out of touch. And you've been out of touch for like 100 years. So I'm not even sure how that's possible. The world and God are very different. And what God has told you to do and what God has told you is right will be contradictory to what the world tells you to do and what is right. And so you've got to decide. You've got to decide today when you leave here. You've got to decide tomorrow when you get up. You have to decide every day of your life, which is going to be primary for me? Am I going to be concerned with the world and whatever that means and however that looks for you, or are you going to be concerned with what God has said? Now, friends, there'll be moments where you might be able to do what is right in the sight of God and the world be okay with it. But those are only moments. Friends, there's 24 hours in a day. And so you have got to decide which you want to do because you can't do both. You can't come in here on Sunday and be okay with God. You and God, we're good. I'm doing what's right in the sight of God. I showed up at church and I'm singing and you know, I put a little something in the offering plate and I'm listening to the preacher. Not really going to do what he said, but I'm, you know, I'm at least looking at him and, and he thinks I'm listening and but when I get home now, I'm back to doing my thing. And when I go to work tomorrow, I'm going to do my thing, and I'm going to keep my coworkers happy, and I'm not going to you know, hurt their feelings, and I'm not going to make them uncomfortable, and, and, and I'm not going to say anything about my faith, and, and I'm going to laugh at their jokes, and I'm going to agree with whatever they say. And You see how this is going? So you can try that, and you can get by with it, but on Judgment Day, remember that day, it's coming, it's real. It's, it's not me that you've got to worry about pleasing on that day. It's him. And what he's going to say is, you were not faithful. Hour and a half, two hours on Sunday morning does not count as faithful. So think about that. Think about that next time you've got to decide, okay, I, I'm... I'm going to laugh at that, or I'm, I'm going to applaud my coworker's lifestyle. Matter of fact, I'm going to be a little envious. He gets to do these things, and I'm constricted by my lifestyle. Or are you going to do what God says right? You've got to decide. Well, why are we faithful? We're faithful because, look, last part of 18 and verse 19. So it will go well with you that you'll take possession of the good land the Lord swore to give your fathers, and look at 19, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Why are you faithful? Because He's faithful. We're, we're different because He's jealous and we're faithful. Why? Because He's faithful. He, he's promised them this land. He said He swore it to you. He, he swore He would give it to you. He said you'll go in and take possession of it. In fact, he'll, he'll thrust out all your enemies before you as the Lord has done what? As He promised. Friends, you have to realize this is a promise that is hundreds and hundreds of years in the making. God had promised it hundreds of years before. I'm going to do this. And here we're seeing the culmination of God's faithfulness. And so Moses tells them the Lord has called upon you to be faithful because He has been faithful to you. 
What a crazy notion to think that God would be faithful to us in sending Christ to die in our place only to raise up a church of unfaithful people. Would God do that? That doesn't seem like that would make good sense. Why would, why would people on one hand claim the name of this man who died for them, who said to them, you know what, if, if I will stand before my Father in heaven and when He lays out all of these things that you have done that are sinful and vile and wretched, when He lays all of that out before you, I'll stand in between you and Him and say, don't look at them, look at me. Why would, why would, on one hand, people claim the name of that man and then at the same time deny him in the next breath? Isn't that what we do when we are unfaithful to Christ? Isn't that what we do when we refuse to follow what God has called us to do? When we refuse to live the way God has called us to live? We look at Christ in one breath and say, I love you. Thank you for your mercy and grace. And then we turn our back on him and say, I don't, I don't know that guy. We become Peter, right? Where he's denying Christ. And everyone's looking at Peter. Weren't you with him? Weren't you around him? Weren't you one of his disciples? I don't know him. I, I don't know that guy. I, I don't know who he is. Don't, don't talk to me about him. Don't accuse me of being his follower. But isn't that how most Christians live during the week? On Sunday, it's praise God. Praise Him for what He's done. Pray, we, we, we're singing praises. We're singing our, our hymns. We're, we're chatting about Jesus in our Sunday school. And then we get to the rest of the week and it's like, I don't know Him. I don't, I don't know that guy. Don't, 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 don't let me in with them. You know, I, I, my mom goes to church. I just go with her sometimes. I just take her. I, you know, it's, I, I do it for the social, you know. I got friends that go there. So we're all, yay, Jesus, on Sunday. And then we're like, I don't, don't. You know, that, that's the preacher's religion. You know, the preacher, he's really excited about Jesus. But I, I just, I just kind of go. <laughs> Trust me, you want to have a deeper relationship with Christ than I do. I mean, you want to be fighting for that. I think about my struggles. I think about my sin. You, you don't want me as your example. And don't pick any of the other preachers around here. They're no better. I hang out with them. I know them. Trust me, they're, they're... Isn't that what we do? So here's Christ who has been faithful to us in all things, faithful to us to the point of death, even death on the cross, dying in our place, taking the sin of the world upon him on the cross, the wrath of God placed on his shoulders. That's how faithful he is to us. And we're like, yeah, I'll be back Sunday. Hang out there, Jesus. You, you do your thing. You're telling your, your guy at work, he's a little old-fashioned for me. You know, I'm more progressive than that. I don't really, I don't buy into all that. His teachings are nice. We are faithful because he has been faithful to us in all things. He has been faithful to you when you were deepest in your sin and furthest from Him. Here's the good news. If that's you this morning, 
You've never turned from your sin, and so you're deeply mired in your sin. You are sinking in it. Here's Christ, still faithful to you, calling upon you to turn from your sin and follow Him. Faithful to you in all things. We've got to be different. We've got to be faithful. And then the third thing this morning, we've got to be reflective. We've got to be reflective. Different, faithful, and reflective. Look with me in verse 20. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? There's a reflection that goes on here. Time has passed. Moses has jumped into the future and he is thinking about a time that's going to come when these people who are listening today, maybe some of them children themselves, they're going to have a son who comes to them and says, so kind of explain to me, Dad. Explain to me these, these things. I, I understand that there's these rules that we follow and that there's these statutes and testimonies that God has. What are we to do? He wants to reflect. Friends, that's why God's faithfulness leads into this is because if you want to understand why you should be different and faithful to God, different from the world, faithful to Christ, you must constantly reflect back on what God has done. It must be constant. What I love about this passage is it puts in context for us that, that any time we're thinking about our salvation, any time we're thinking about our relationship with God, we must always put our relationship with God in the context of what God has done in Christ. It's one of the things we need to be careful with when we share our testimony. You know, you, uh, there's been trainings before. I've heard of people going to trainings and they're polishing up their testimony. One thing you must make sure is in your testimony is not simply what God has done in your life. Because what God has done in your life has no meaning if He had not done what He did 2,000 years ago on the cross. And so your testimony, whether it's at the beginning or at the end, has to inform people that what God has done for you how He has worked in your life is deeply rooted, completely rooted in what He has done 2,000 years ago. It can't be otherwise. We can't simply say, well, God's been good to me and He's given me this and, and I, was, I was doing these things and He delivered me out. Well, well goodness, how, how does a person know that He's going to do that for them? Well, not because simply He's done it for you, but because of what He did 2,000 years ago on the cross. Because he died on the cross, it makes it possible now that because you're doing this or that, because you're mired in your sin, that he can deliver you out because of what he did then. And so when the son comes and asks, well, well why do we do these things? Moses tells them, you're going to reflect back on what God has done for us as a people. You're going to remember these three things. You're going to remember first our bondage. He tells them that in the first part of 21. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
We were slaves in Egypt, and God has brought us out. First, you've got to remember, if you're going to reflect on what God has done for you, you've got to go back and remember where you were in your sin. Because any person whom God has saved has been delivered from sin, from the bondage of sin. I don't care if you trace your, your uh, salvation experience, if you trace your conversion back to when you were five years old. At five years old, you were in bondage to sin. At four years old, at three years old, and we can start debating then, I don't believe salvation's happened quite that young. They may be very rare, but wherever you were, whether you were, were five or you were 50, if you were saved by Christ, He has delivered you from bondage. And if you miss that point, then the people of our world are never going to resonate with your testimony. They're never going to resonate with what you're saying because that's where they are. And sometimes people who are lost will look at the lives of Christians and they'll say, well, I'm never going to have that. They may see that your, your life is, is somewhat together. They may see that, that your marriage or your family is strong and, and they look at theirs and they, they can't relate. That's why you have to draw them back and remind them, Christ has brought me out of this. If it wasn't for His deliverance out of this bondage, that's where I would still be. And my life may look very similar to yours. You can't tell them that if you leave that part out. See, our, our world and our culture is no longer talking about or thinking about sin. And yet people, I think, know deep in their heart that it exists. They know deep in their heart that there is something wrong with them. That there is something going on in their heart that is not right. They, they have no joy. When we remind them, when we reflect on the bondage of sin, we draw them into that. We allow them to see exactly where they have come from. And then next, we have to remember, we have to remind them about God's deliverance. The second part of verse 21, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. So we were in bondage. God has delivered us from bondage. We were in sin. God has delivered us from sin. It's the picture that we see throughout the Old Testament here. It's physical, actual slavery in Egypt. When we get to the New Testament, we see the deliverance that God has for us out of the bondage of sin, the bondage of darkness. It's our calling to reflect on this. You didn't get yourself out. Wherever you were, Wherever you were when Christ called you, you did not deliver yourself. You didn't pull yourself out. You may look at the process and you may say, well, well here I did this and, and here I made that decision uh, to stop doing this and, and here I did that. But, but if we have been saved by Christ, He has delivered us out of bondage. He has brought us out through His own power. You think about the, the exodus that happens when they come out of Egypt. What part of it, what part of it did the, the Hebrew people do? 
What part of it could they trace and they were responsible for? The, the only thing that you see in that entire process as Moses goes and he speaks before Pharaoh is that they were the ones who were faithful when they slaughtered the lamb and they took the blood and they applied it to the doorpost of their home. And during that last plague, the angel of death, as, as the angel of death came over Egypt, looked, and if there, were, if there was blood applied to the doorpost of the home, the angel passed on by that home and went to the next one. Everything else. God does it, correct? God sends even that plague. God parts the Red Sea. God provides them the food and the water when they're in the wilderness. God takes care of all of it, right? Because God delivers them. Friends, you and I need to reflect on that deliverance. When we start to get a little puffed up, we start to get a little conceited, a little prideful about where we are in life and, and maybe again how our lives are, are kind of together and how our marriages are, are sort of working out and how our families are, are doing pretty well. We start to look at those things and we can get a little proud. And then we reflect on the fact that God has delivered us. And it humbles us again. He has we remember our bondage, we remember God's deliverance, and then the third thing there, we remember God's promises. Look in verse 23. And He brought us out from there, talking about Egypt, that He might bring us in and give us the land that He swore to give our fathers. So we reflect on our bondage, we reflect on the deliverance, and then we reflect on the promises that God has made to us. Not only has He brought us out of bondage, not only has He delivered us from evil, but He has placed us now in this promised land. He has placed us in this relationship with Him where we understand that we have life in Christ and eternal life forever with God. We need to reflect on that. How often when you're struggling with difficulties in this life, when you're going through hardships, do you stop and remember, you know what? God has brought me out of bondage. God has delivered me and God has made great promises to me. And so no matter what I'm facing in this life, no matter the difficulties that I'm going through here, God is going to deliver me from this and God has got something better for me in the future. God has got something greater for me than I could ever imagine here. You think about that. If you're going through some hardship today, if you're going through some struggle and you're not sure where the end is, you're not sure what's going to come of it, maybe you're struggling with something the doctor has told you or you're worried about something that you're facing at your job or in your future financially or with your children, whatever that is, God calls upon all of us in that moment to reflect on the fact that He has made promises for us. And no matter what this life throws at us, we have an eternity with Him forever. I think we spend so much time thinking about what we have in this life and so little thinking about what is ahead. There is so much ahead of us. There's an eternity with Christ ahead of us. And we stop and reflect on the momentary time that we have in this life. The few in light of eternity, the few moments that we have here consume all of our thought, but not what's ahead. If you knew that today for lunch you were going to eat at McDonald's, but for supper you're going to go to your favorite restaurant, you're going to order the most expensive thing on the menu, and somebody else was going to take care of the bill, which meal would you spend more time thinking about?
if you're weird, odd, or something, you'd think about McDonald's. And you'd spend all your time at McDonald's. And you'd be looking at the menu, and you would really just struggle through as if McDonald's menu has changed. And you would just go through it and through it and through it and spend just literally all of your time thinking about that meal at McDonald's. And literally forget what was coming up tonight when you ate your favorite meal. In fact, you would spend so much time at McDonald's that by the time you finished eating there, it would be time to go on to your favorite meal, and you really wouldn't even be ready. You wouldn't even be hungry. But that's what we do. This life is McDonald's, or worse. And God's got something so great planned for the end, for what is ahead. But we spend no time getting prepared for there, and all our time thinking about what we're going to do at McDonald's. Remember our bondage, God's deliverance, and God's promise. And we do so because, verse 24, He is working all things together for our good. We reflect because everything He has done, past, present, and future, He is working together for our good. He had put these statutes and rules and the fear of God in place for their good always, verse 24 says. What God has commanded us is always for our good. And so for the sake of Christ, we must be different. We must be faithful and we must be reflective. And when the people of God were those things, what happens to them in verse 25? He says, and it will be righteousness for us. The righteousness for the people there, as Moses is writing, is tied up in their obedience. And this righteousness was their opportunity to have this close relationship with God. The good news for us is that and fortunate for us, is that our righteousness is tied to Christ. When we come to God as vile sinners, wretched, terrible sinners, the moment when Christ saves our heart, we stand before God righteous. We stand before God in perfect relationship. They had all this work to do. They had all this stuff that they had to do to, to get righteous before God. We are given the righteousness of Christ. Shouldn't that then, though, have some effect on our life? I, I would even maybe frame it this way. The righteousness of Christ will have an effect on our life. We cannot live otherwise. We cannot claim in one breath the name of Christ and what He has done in our life and in the next breath deny Him and want nothing to do with Him. It is imperative that we both have a relationship with Christ through His free offer of salvation and then by having that relationship, our life is changed by it. That we're different from the world. That we live faithfully before God. That we reflect on what He has done. 
how he has worked in the past, how he has worked in our life. Friends, this morning, if you claim the name of Christ, I want to encourage you. I want to to call on you from God's word that, that we must live differently. That we must live faithfully. We're different from the world because we're faithful to Christ. And that's going to present you with obstacles in your life. That's going to present you with difficulties. There are going to be things that you have to do different and navigate differently because you have decided to follow Christ. But that's His calling on us this morning. As they were entering a strange land, as you're going to enter one when you go from this place, will you give in to the false worship around you? Will you give in to the gods of the other people? Or will you stand different from them and faithful to Christ? Friends, I encourage you that you can do that by reflecting on what God has done. By remembering how He has offered you salvation through Christ. How He has given you a free gift that you could not get on your own. This morning, how are you going to live? How are you going to live in light of what God has said to us? He is our God. We are His people. How will we live in light of the fact that He has called us to live differently and faithfully? Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You today for Your goodness and Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy and we thank You for the love that You have shown us in Christ. God, how good it is to know that we are Yours. We are Your people. You are our God and You have called us You've called us, God, to live in such a way as to bring glory and honor to You. You've called us to live obedient lives. God, where we, God, we shun the false worship around us and we live faithfully to You. God, remind us often of what You've done. Remind us of your goodness and grace. God, remind us of the great blessing we have in Christ. God, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We praise you for all that you're doing in our midst. God, speak to us now during this time of invitation. Speak to our hearts. God, help us to see those areas, God, where we we need your desperate guidance. God, please... Please speak to us during this time. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing. I want to invite you to respond to God's Word this morning. He's called upon us to to live uh, differently than we do. To to live faithfully before Him. That's something you, you can't do just here. You have to do when we leave this place. But maybe God has spoken to your heart this morning and, and you just want to you just want to pray, pray with me or pray here at the front that, that God would work in your heart, maybe where you're at, you just need to speak with Him. And if you don't know Him this morning, friends, the good news is that He's faithful even to you. Even if you do not have a relationship with Him, 
you've, you've run from it, you've denied it, whatever it is, this morning He is faithful to you in calling you once again through His Word to turn from your sin and believe the good news of Christ. The good news of what Christ has done for us in, in taking on God's wrath on the cross, the, the dying in our place and giving us the righteousness that can only come from Him. If you don't know Him this morning, come and let me share with you how to know Him, how you can have a relationship with Him, how you can know His faithfulness. However God is speaking to your heart, would you respond this morning as we sing together?